Hi, this is the Restless Ben Podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Orndorff. All the podcast stories are available, complete with pictures, at RestlessBen.com. You can also follow me on Instagram, at RestlessBen, and subscribe to the Restless Ben YouTube channel for video compilations. Today's episode stretches from the undersea world of thresher sharks and sardine schools to the higher altitudes of North Luzon. With my visa extended, there is no excuse not to give the Philippines a proper lap. Today's episode is brought to you by Helio Basin Brewing Company, a veteran-led brewery committed to bringing classic and unique flavors to beer drinkers across Arizona. One of the top-rated breweries in Phoenix, Helio Basin boasts a lineup of seven core beers and numerous seasonal offerings that have earned it accolades, including being rated one of the top 35 breweries in the United States. If you're in their neck of the woods, drop in for craft beer and some locally sourced dishes from their creative kitchen. All right, without further ado... Here's podcast number 16, Caves and Crags. Although my toes were painfully doubled over in the climbing shoes, I was relieved to feel purchase when I began to stand up on my trembling right leg. A combination of adrenaline and muscle strain had caused a violent, involuntary shaking of my leg, which is aptly referred to in the climbing community as the sewing machine. Hanging 30 feet above the sharp rocks below, I heard my Filipino belayer Israel shout up some indecipherable encouragement. With a two-finger hold for my left hand and barely a big toe-sized hole for my right foot, I slowly inched my way up, faced brushing against the limestone wall. Unlike top rope climbing, where the rope is looped through an anchor at the top of the crag, lead, or sport climbing, involves clipping into anchors along the route as one ascends. After climbing past an anchor, a fall will be double the distance to the last clip, which makes it more real, more exciting, and more dangerous than top rope climbing. I was five feet above my last clip and tried not to think about falling as my right hand inched towards salvation, a promising deep hold. With my entire body pressed against the wall and less than six inches to go, a creature the size of a loaf of bread exploded out of the hole I was reaching for. Falling! I shouted as my right knee bent and I slid back down to a crouch. My right toe slipped out of the hold and the rubber of my shoe skidded down the limestone for a split second before the fingers of my left hand released. Falling with my legs wide and bent, I felt the jarring but welcome tension of the rope catch. I swung down and into the wall, bending my knees once my feet reconnected with the rock face to absorb the momentum. There, perched on a branch less than ten feet away, was a small owl with bright yellow eyes staring daggers into me for disturbing his slumber. Now that I was safely leaning back in my harness, locked in a staring contest with an understandably pissed-off owl, the group of Belgian medical students that I had befriended a few days earlier all laughed at the scene, which was equal parts intense and humorous. Set back in the mountains of northern Luzon, the small town of Sagada offers incredible views of ancient rice terraces carved into the steep hillsides, outdoor adventure sports, and rich tribal heritage to those willing to stomach the 11 hours of windy bus rides from Clark International Airport, northwest of the capital, Manila. The previous day, the six Belgians and I had spent an action-packed afternoon spelunking a three-hour traverse from the cathedral-esque Lu Muang Burial Cave to the water-filled Sumuang Gang Cave. Fuck me, that's hard to say. <laughs> After a fortifying vegetarian lunch overlooking the surrounding valley and rice terraces at Gaia Cafe and Crafts, we forged on to Bombadoc Waterfall. The two-kilometer hike down into the valley and along the narrow rice terrace walls ended in a spectacular 300-foot waterfall with several 15- to 25-foot cliffs to jump off of into the pool below. After splashing around and hiking back out of the valley, we called in an early afternoon to get some sleep for climbing at Echo Valley in the morning. A few weeks before, I had finally wrenched myself free from the intoxicating island surfer vibes of Shargao Island and made tracks from Wild Boal to catch up with my cousin Kim and swim with the schooling sardines there. 
The first leg of the journey was a ferry from Shargao Island to the port city and transit hub of Surigao. Right outside the port, the mobs of tricycle drivers wait at the congested exit gate bottleneck, shouting prices and destinations of passengers. Once you push past, the children whose parents have instructed them to ask for money and look sad begin to silently materialize. Other children, whose parents haven't trained them to beg, observe you with curiosity and occasionally a shy wave. The more courageous ones muster a hello, and some even give you a high five. At the local corner restaurant, I was ordering some rice, pork stew, and hard-boiled eggs when one of the children, a boy of about six, began to tug at my sleeve and beg. The restaurant owner waved him away and told me not to give the kids money. Although well-intentioned, tourists that have done so in the past have fueled this type of behavior. Parents who view their children begging as preferable to attending school can create a vicious cycle. A man with cerebral palsy was seated alone outside the corner restaurant on a long, low, homemade bench. Inside the restaurant was uncomfortably hot, and there was a nice breeze blowing outside, so I sat down next to him and requested that they give me my plate to eat there. As I lowered myself down, I flashed him a warm smile, which he immediately returned. The restaurant owner seemed surprised and a bit amused by my seating preference. She even came out and smiled at us sitting there in the shade next to each other. The man wasn't begging and seemed content to have some company. I told the restaurant owner that if he wanted food, to add it to my tab. The woman indicated that he was taken care of, but acknowledged my good intentions. When I had finished and paid, I walked to a fruit cart and asked to buy half a bunch of bananas. The vendor wanted to sell the bunch as one unit. Fifteen bananas was more than I could eat, and they didn't stand a chance of survival on my overnight sea journey to Cebu. But I gave him a hundred pesos, about two bucks, and took the whole bunch. As I walked back to the restaurant with them, I made eye contact with the owner and pantomimed giving one to a child. She nodded her approval, and I went on a banana-giving spree. I gave them to every child I saw, those that had begged, those that had not. I gave one to the man I sat next to, I gave one to the security guard at the port gate, and one to each of the personnel working the x-ray machine and metal detector. It was a gesture that indicated openness and kindness, but no real monetary value. It was unquestionably the highlight of my day. We'll be right back after this. An additional benefit of my banana largesse was that the port security at the x-ray machine didn't catch the machete or the spear gun in my bag. It was really a toss-up if they would confiscate them, especially the spear gun, but I figured it was worth a shot. The security woman at the metal detector asked me to remove my sunglasses so she could see my eyes. Playfully, I asked her what color they were, blue or green. She giggled, blushed, and then said green, followed by, where are you from? USA, I said. Want a banana? Without hesitation, she plucked one off the bunch, and I made the want one face at the x-ray operator. He didn't need to be asked twice. They were happily chomping away as I hefted my backpack full of weapons back onto my shoulders without so much as a second glance from security. The overnight ferry departed Surigao at 7 p.m. and got into Cebu City at 4 a.m. The air-conditioned cabin I had paid a few extra dollars for was a loud, bustling mess, so I left my big pack there and found a quiet, dark area at the aft of the ship to sling up my hammock under the clear night sky. After a few hours of stargazing, gentle rocking, and light dozing, I ventured back to my tiny bunk to snatch a little bit more shut-eye. My early bus to Mualboal on the western coast of Cebu Island landed me at my destination just after 7 a.m. Feeling groggy, I shuffled into Crane's guest house, where my cousin Kim and her German husband Michael, as well as their 18-month-old Finn, were staying and checked into my very own miniature bamboo hut. The next few days were spent catching up with Kim and company, swimming with schooling sardine balls, and venturing to the many limestone waterfalls that adorned the lush rainforest hills of Cebu Island. On the second morning, Michael appointed himself the group's official barista since my previous morning's brew had been too weak. They had been subsisting on the instant stuff, 
so the discovery that I had actual grounds in tow was enough to raise spirits and expectations. Alas, without any coffee preparation paraphernalia, I was reduced to creating a pot of cowboy coffee and pouring it into several vessels to separate the spent grounds from the brew, hopefully avoiding the dreaded crunchy sip. It wasn't my best work, and would be better described as an abject failure. Nonetheless, I secretly hoped that some of the difficulties I experienced would also beset the new brewer. Peering nonchalantly over my shoulder while preparing my oatmeal, I saw Michael struggling to turn off the stove as the coffee pot boiled over the brim, extinguishing the burner flames. Metaphorically similar, my spiteful little heart brimmed with joy. Despite this setback, his batch was admittedly better than mine. I considered it a win-win, since I got to have my spite coffee and drink it too. Catching up with Kim and discussing how our lives had developed was eye-opening. For one, watching her and Michael travel with a young child was sobering. If my solo travel could be likened to doing a leisurely backstroke while theatrically spouting an arc of water from my mouth, theirs looked to me like thrashing about wildly while sputtering water to avoid drowning. A one-and-a-half-year-old, no matter how well-behaved, is invariably a screaming poop terrorist that commands constant parental attention. Veteran travelers who met in northern Thailand Kim and Michael admitted that travel with a child was a very different experience. That said, the joy on their faces when their own flesh and blood laughed while splashing about in the pool can't really be quantified. The cost-benefit analysis of deciding whether to have children or not consists of an equation riddled with intangible benefits like the boundless love for one's own children and opportunity costs and lifestyle, which makes accurate calculations impossible. Kim and I also amused about how people find themselves on the long-term travel track. This alternative existence is typically characterized by a minimalist lifestyle, a value system that prioritizes one's time and freedom over career achievements, and an insatiable wanderlust. Life doesn't cater to alarms or a 40-hour work week. Adventures don't need to fit into a 30-day block of annual leave, and maintaining a steady occupation until 65 is out of the question. But this worldview is fleetingly rare in Western culture. Why? An architect by trade with credentials from Wellesley, MIT, Harvard, and Cambridge Kim is intellectually gifted and no slouch. For the past six years, she and Michael often won't work for over a year at a time, carefully managing their finances to ensure economic sustainability and taking contract work when necessary. They met in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where Kim worked as an adjunct architecture professor at Chiang Mai University, and Michael worked as an engineer for a German-owned manufacturing firm. After two years, Kim opted to bow out of the professor gig as it didn't pay enough to warrant the constraints it put upon her schedule and freedom. Michael also stopped working, and the two of them enjoyed rock-bottom cost of living, which they paid for with their savings from their previous careers, stashed in U.S. dollars and euros, respectively. When asked how they arrived at their current station in life, neither currently working, but he takes computer engineering contract gigs, and she provides English editing services online, Kim leaned back in her chair and thought about it for a minute before answering. Something has to go very wrong, she said. After a 10-year relationship that was slated for marriage and kids ended abruptly, coinciding with graduation of a soul-draining architecture school experience, old straight and narrow Kim threw her hands up in the universal fuck-this gesture. She flew back to Chiang Mai, where she had worked as an adjunct architecture professor through a University of Maryland exchange program, and took some personal time to reground herself. This eventually morphed into a fun-employed exploration into life on the other side of the hamster wheel. She made new friends, traveled, pursued passions both new and old, and met her husband. Without her fuck-this epiphany, resulting from a series of unfortunate events, Kim would likely be a career architect grinding it out until retirement. I don't wish for anyone's plans to fall apart, but I'm so glad that things happened the way they did for me, she said, contently popping a slice of mango into her mouth and bouncing Finn on her knee. 
After a few days in Mwabwa, I parted ways with Kim and headed up to the tiny island of Malapasqua, located a 30-minute ferry ride from the northern tip of Cebu Island. The island is a darling of the diving community renowned for its thresher sharks, which rise from the depths in the early morning to a plateau cleaning station, where smaller fish, known as cleaning wrasse, symbiotically eat dead skin and bacteria from the shark's body, gills, and mouth. A group of us met at the dive shop at 4.30 a.m. and were already in the water by the time the sun breached the horizon line. Generally opting to freedive, it had been a while since I had donned a dive rig, and at first it felt clunky and awkward. But after we got down to 90 feet and started looking around for our long-tailed, pelagic friends, I was glad to be able to breathe. Some things you just can't do freediving. Out of the blue, the first thresher silhouette appeared just at the edge of our visibility. Curious, it came cruising directly by us, passing within 10 feet of where we knelt on the plateau. The whole experience would have been far more intimidating if it weren't for the shark's silly appearance. Threshers have giant pupils and narrow, frowning mouths that make them look like a Japanese anime cartoon shark having a really bad acid trip. The whip-like tail is as long as its body, giving it a frilly appearance, like a drag queen with a feather boa. We had had several more thresher drive-bys before our controlled ascent and five-minute safety stop. Back at the dive shop, there was talk of diving Gato Island, an hour boat ride to a small uninhabited island with caves and tunnels where white-tip reef sharks and healthy coral were abundant. Instead of paying to join a dive trip, a German and an Italian freediver agreed to split the cost of a boat with me. The three of us rented some additional gear like wetsuits, weight belts, fins, and dive flashlights and headed to Gatto. The three of us did some cliff jumping, freedived to a Mother Mary statue at the mouth of an underwater cave, and then began freediving into a tunnel under the island. The tunnel begins 30 feet down inside of a dark cave and requires a dive light. After several minutes of slow controlled breathing to flood our blood with oxygen, we took turns diving down inside the tunnel with the flashlights. Several large rooms were linked together with a blue window on the far side where the tunnel led back up to the surface. Once you're 15 to 20 feet inside the first large cavern, the gravity of the situation sets in. Above and on both sides, you're surrounded by stone. You can't see the surface anymore, and there isn't much room for error. Severe foot and calf cramps can strike out of the blue, and if you push it too far, shallow water blackouts claim lives every year. But I remained calm as I ventured up to the next room. Then, as my flashlight beam panned across the floor, I saw the glint of a shark's eye on the ground just a few feet in front of me. The white tip reef shark that was lying on the bottom seemed uninterested in my presence, but caught me by surprise. Feeling my heartbeat quicken, I slowly but deliberately swam back through the first cavern, out of the mouth of the tunnel, and up to what felt like a long distance to the surface for that sweet breath of air. My heart full of sun, salt, and sand, I was ready to head to the cool, misty mountains of North Luzon. RestlessBen.com for all the stories complete with pictures. I've included a travel gear page on RestlessBen.com that has links to some of my favorite gear on Amazon.com. Regardless of what you buy, if you use my link to reach the Amazon portal before you get whatever it is your heart desires, I get a tiny little ad revenue. It doesn't cost you a dime, and it helps me stretch my travel a bit longer. I'm basically like a Girl Scout, but instead of delicious cookies, it's pretty much anything you can imagine. And instead of using the money to go camping, I'm using it to avoid going back to work. But I'll probably use some of it to go camping too. I'm Ben Orndorff, and I'll be back next week with a new episode of Restless Bank.